when we think about planning for the future in our communities, so not just in healthcare, but in education, transport, and really any industry or sector, digital and technology is usually pretty closely linked to that concept of what the future looks like. But is our future one that's run by cyborgs and artificial intelligence devoid of any human interaction? Of course not. Well, I hope not. I think that for us to really nail it with a digitally enabled future, it's got to be a future that's inclusive for all communities within this big brown land. So how do we stop talking about it and actually start building it, that digitally enabled future? Well, for one, to move the needle, you really need to get that buy-in from governments and policymakers at a state and federal level. And one MP who gets it and seems to be doing his darndest to not just drive change from above, but from the bottom up with stuff that we can all relate to is Minister Victor Dominello. And in this episode, I'm pumped to be joined by Mr. Dominello to discuss how we might go about effectively driving digital transformation, what that looks like in transforming healthcare, and a lot more too. Collaboration starts with the conversation team, Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech, a podcast and membership community about technology in healthcare. Here's your host, Peter Birch. With me today is Minister Victor Dominello. He's a member of the New South Wales Legislative Assembly, representing the electorate of Ride in the Liberal Party since 2008, and currently Minister for Customer Service and Digital Government for New South Wales. Minister Dominello, how are you? I'm well, Pete. How are you? Really good, thank you. Thanks for making the time in your busy schedule to come and have a chat. I think it's been one that many in the THC Plus community and generally in the audience of, uh, I think that is, is a match made in heaven. So great to have you on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to be here with like-minded people, so it's great. Love it. Well, for those that may not know, tell us a bit about you, your background and what your role encompasses. Well, basically my job inside a government is uh, Minister for Customer Service. That is putting people first. Because in government, we tend to be structured around silos. So we put organizations first. I describe it like the sun. You know, at the moment, we expect people to rotate and evolve around us, whereas we should re-evolve and evolve around the individual, around the customer. And that's how you get a much better customer experience. So that's my job to drive that change. The flagship for that is Service New South Wales. That's the, you know, the pinup child. But there's much more than service. And then the other part is digital government. So obviously every agency has got a digital component and my job is to try and stitch all of that together. So again, we enhance that that journey. Yeah, I feel like that digital piece is really that that important part to stitch it all together. As you say, you know, it's only, even though the brand name would have changed years and years ago, I only recently stopped calling it the RTA to take down and do my Red Joe Service New South Wales. I think after so much we've seen delivery in terms of pulling it all together, it actually kind of the digital bits and pieces, not all these disparate apps, the ability to do it all from within is really important. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it's really, really hard as your community would understand, like tech, it's just really, really complex plumbing underneath the surface. And you know, my job is not to show all the plumbing because people aren't interested in that. They just want to know that when they turn the tap on, hot or cold water is coming out. But unfortunately, in our case, and in most governments' cases, the plumbing is so old. They're using old clay pipes that are leaking, that are broken, that are not connected. It is terrible behind the scenes. But again, we've got to make sure that we do our best to make sure that the experience above surface is, is as good as it can be. 
You've touched on a really important point, I think, which is that, you know, when people think about the role of technology or digital, they might say, oh, I'm not a technical person or technology is not my thing. But when it comes to customer service or just interacting and engaging with the community, particularly over the last couple of years, we've seen with little things and getting into places, scanning QR codes or every little bit, everyone's got to engage with technology. And that's how we engage with loved ones when we're not in front of them. And so everyone brings it together. So I can see why customer service and digital being close together is really important. Does that resonate with you? No, absolutely. Like we're in a twilight zone. We've got a whole lot of natives that are born right now, digital natives that are born right now that will know nothing other than a digital or quasi-digital world. Yet we get people like my mum that, you know, grew up in a poor town in Italy 70 odd years ago. And, you know, she's still clinging on to a world where, you know, she just enjoys the, the device. So she doesn't feel comfortable around a mobile phone and the various things it can do. And that's fair enough too. And that's why with Service New South Wales, it's not all digital. Uh, we do have physical or traditional channels and that's critical as we move forward to make sure we leave no one behind in terms of service delivery. Absolutely. And I want to come to that in a bit too, because that's really important when it comes to healthcare specifically. But whenever I think of you, Victor, I think of not just the only thing, but I often think of your cool LinkedIn posts that draw a particular example and say, hey, check this out. I'm renewing my passport and what's the go with all these bits of paper or hey, like even paying a parking ticket, whatever it is. I feel like you're like the voice of many that are like, like there must be so many people that look at your post and go, yeah, this guy gets it finally. I mean, it's refreshing to see that you see a problem without necessarily having the answer yet. And you're willing to kind of share it and say, well, let's kind of work this out. You know, in the old days, it would have been rare to see that approach. It probably still is pretty rare now. I'm keen to know what drives you to take this somewhat unique approach to sharing what you do. Oh, because I'm like everybody else. I'm an individual first and foremost. Like, you know, people think that when you're in government or you're a minister, you get all these special treatments and you live in some bubble. Well, in part, you live in a bubble. It's called parliament house. But in the day-to-day operational part of life, I've got to go through transactions like everybody else. And I get frustrated like everybody else. And you know, all I'm doing is sharing my frustrations because I see the pain point. The challenge with a lot of politicians in the traditional and modern world is that they don't relate. They just talk about the brighter future, the glossy brochure, but that's not the world. The world is about problems and challenges. And if people thought that we were living in Elysium, they wouldn't vote for you because Mm. they'd say, we're in heaven already. I don't need change. If people vote for change, for improvement, and if I get to a day where I can't see problems, then I'm out of a job, which is a great thing. I'd love to live in that heaven. So, you know, my view is if I want to advocate for the customer, for the individual journey, then I need to live it and experience it, which I do and share it more importantly, because all politicians have those pain points. They just don't share it. That's all. Yeah. What I like as well is that it's not just you whinging about stuff, which is what a lot of people also do online, but there's also like delivery and execution side as well. And like saying, Hey, this is something that was raised. We've worked it through and come to here. I'll come to some health specific ones in a minute, but I'm keen to open up to other areas outside of healthcare too. What are some kind of parts that you see that digital have really drive some meaningful transformation at things that might not be so sexy or glossy on the top, but it's really changing stuff for people on a day to day, big or small? Well, the biggest priority for the ministerial office is digital identity. And I'll explain why. If we land that, then we take a lot of sting out of cybersecurity risk. That becomes the golden thread for 
seamless service delivery as you move from agency to agency to agency. It enhances privacy and, and security settings. It is just the most important thing. Now, it's not sexy, but it is absolutely foundational. So hopefully by the end of the year, we'll land you know, a prototype of what that could look like. For example, we've already got the digital driver's license. That's worth, say, 40 points. By July the 28th, we should have the alpha of the digital birth certificate. And by September, we'll have the beta. And then, you know, touch wood, see how we go by the end of the year in terms of a broader rollout. But that's normally worth 70 points. So already in your mobile phone, in your smart device, you've got 110 points. So my job is to make sure that we're digital to protect privacy, to protect security settings. So I don't want people to go around and, and show their driver's license to all these third parties with all that private information. In the future, that can be the subset of your credentials. Mm. Uh, you will then, if you choose, if you opt in, get a Service New South Wales identity. And that way you can say, Service New South Wales will vouch for who I am. You do not need to see my driver's license. You do not need to see my birth certificate. So that's probably the number one thing. And from that, a whole lot of exciting opportunities arise in terms of service delivery. There'll be a lot of angry wallet makers that are, are keeping an eye out for you, Victor. But other than that, I think a lot of people will be happy. <laughs> well, uh, I ditched my wallet I, years ago. I ditched mine years ago. So well, there you go. I'm going to go out and yeah, I, I do have the sympathy for the Animal Justice Party. I, I actually get on board with him, so I don't have a problem there. <laughs> on a serious note, to that point that you raised around cybersecurity and personal identity, I feel like that's going to be a really important piece to get that comms right with people out to the broader population because on one hand, it technically provides this great piece of security and people aren't waving IDs around everywhere and sending lots of data in bits and places. But on the same time, if they're not trusting the custodians of that data, then there's going to be a lot of friction in terms of getting that buy-in and things. So that, that feels like a really important piece. Yes, but on now when you said custodians, who are or who is the custodian? Now, in my perfect world, it's a world of decentralization. It's a world of Web3. And, you know, when people talk, think Web3, they think NFTs and a whole lot of blockchain and the like. For me, Web3 is about principles. And the principle is that the individual owns their data. And that's what we're building out. Now, sure, the regulator of the state or the federal government or whoever the regulator is will issue the credential, but you own it. So you then have control. You have custodianship of I will share it with this person, that person, or I won't share it. And I think that's critical. Once we empower the individual with control of their data, then that builds trust. Mm, absolutely. Really cool. So when it comes to healthcare then, is there anything on your radar on what role digital plays in oh, transforming health? For me, health is the, the final frontier. Like I go to politics to make a difference. And you know, the most profound difference you'll make is in healthcare for sure. And there are so many structural and deep challenges in healthcare because of the intersection between federal, state, local, private, public. It is just a labyrinth. The thing that we're building out now is a patient slash health app. And we're using the same design architecture as we did with the service app, which has pretty much got like 90% of the population on it now. If we can put center of gravity back to the patient, that will help navigate that labyrinth that is health. Because otherwise we'll be creating a thousand different systems and trying to stitch those systems together is nigh on impossible because every, every day there's a new platform coming out. But if we can say, no, 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 the sun is not 
the industries as they keep turning up. The sun is not the departments as they keep you know evolving. The sun is the patient. So everybody mm-hmm. needs to plug into that patient. So you design your systems around that touch point. Then I think that's the way to go. So if we can get you know many millions of people onto the patient app, then we will find that industry and you know governments alike and the agencies will want to plug into that because they'll want to serve that patient. Absolutely. I'm thinking as you're saying this, do you find a challenge in a good way or, or not in driving some of this at a state level when a lot of the challenges, you know, be it in health or other areas to need to happen federally? Yeah, look, that's a great question, Pete, because yes, some of the big, big challenges are in the federal space. I did a post recently where I called it the data rails, you know, because Mm. ultimately the federal government should be responsible for organising the data gauges to make sure that the the railway systems between the various states and territories are aligned. Unfortunately, they're not. We've got a driver's licence in New South Wales that's not recognised in the other state because it's digital or, you know, likewise, if it's plastic even, like it's absolute insanity. So a lot of the work has to be done at the federal level. But what I find at state, it is smaller than feds, the feds are. So that, you know, we're in the Goldilocks zone. We're not so small, that local council, that you can't do much. We're not too big that's, you know, it's too hard to move. We're in that Goldilocks zone where we've got the agility. And because we're the largest state, we've got some heft. So I think I'm really happy with the reform that we've undertaken and what's on the journey ahead. I think you're right. And I was checking into a hotel in Melbourne recently. And I showed my phone and they nearly didn't let me stay, but, the, <laughs> but they were like, oh, it's a cool idea. Right. And so I feel like this is something that's, you know, that driving that change, even when it comes to government and politics, driving it at a state level so that then they can see that in New South Wales, not a small shanty town, it's been done successfully. Other states can follow. And that's why look at the feds. Um, they've now got services Australia. Because they saw the success of Service New South Wales. You know, the driver's license, a whole lot of other states are now coming on board. So Queensland, South Australia, I've got no doubt, Victoria. You need the first mover. And that's one of the best things of Federation, the competition slash innovation. But we need to equally focus on the collaboration because otherwise we're just going to be a series of tribes and that's, that's just painful. Yeah. Talking my language, I like it. Hey, we put the word out to the THD Plus community, to some of our members, and some of our members work within New South Wales Health or within local health districts in different roles in clinical and non. And one of the questions that came through was, you know, they they were inspired by the way that you're able to drive change within the structure that you're in. Have you got advice for those that are working within, say, the public health space that can see opportunity for change that perhaps feel like that's not my job or it's beyond my pay grade? How do you do something within a system generally that might feel too entrepreneurial for like a a system like New South Wales Health? Well, I feel their pain because like I'm in a system that is archaic. Mm. Like, you know, parliament is so old and so old in its thinking. Like the other day, I tried to table a speech in Parliament, okay, because yeah, I was acting for another minister. I won't talk them in, but he gave me this massive speech to read, and it was going to take me literally two hours. I had a croaky voice, and I had meeting after meeting. He gave me this water paper to read. I said, "Why do I need to read this? No one's going to watch me read it. Why don't I just table it? It's on my hand side. Yeah, I can then send it in the file. Happy days." And that just sent a cat amongst the pigeons. What do you do? You've got to read it. I said, why do I have to read it? Like, I'm a former lawyer. Like, the only time a judge will look at what I read is if there's any vagary around the interpretation. So if that's the case, they're not going to say, 
show me the video. I want to see winking at this point where he's scratching his chin, musing, <laughs> thinking, well, he looked to the sure right. He looked to the right, he, not the left. He, he looked to the right. He wasn't staring at the camera when he said this. Like, give me a break. But sure enough, I formally had to write if I could do that in the future. And I formally got a response back in writing saying, no, I live in a world of, it feels like Jurassic Park sometimes. So I understand the pain. You just got to continue to push and show the benefit of new ideas on, on how it improves the outcomes. So one of your earlier questions, if people want to see tech as valuable to them if it improves their lives. So if we've got people in your community that are finding resistance, show the benefit of the change. And then I think you slowly form a coalition of willing. Yeah. Love it. Great advice. There was another question that was raised within the community too about how, and I think you've spoken to some of these points before too, which is how would a customer service approach that you've got be applied to healthcare? And then what are some of the outcomes that can come from that? I think it comes from a place of, you know, within the podcast and within what we've talked about, a lot of the time this this point around patient centricity, like you mentioned before, with the son being the patient, I feel like that's kind of core within customer service. So again, back to the point around your role encompassing both then coming into healthcare, I think that healthcare could benefit from more of this customer-centric approach and also the digitization too. So oh, there's no, no doubt about it. But I remember going to a hospital in the last few years. It was a new hospital opening and they were keen to show me and they showed me all the new tech and everything. And it was amazing. Like it is so impressive how fast and how progressive health tech is going. And thank God for all of us. But then um, as they were walking me through, I said, thanks for all that. That's really impressive. But just tell me when I come in, how am I triage? Oh, you've got to go through here. You've got to sign all these paper forms and blah, blah, blah. Mm. I said, really? It's 2022 and I have to sign forms. Like we're already checking in with QR codes. Like surely I can give you all this on my QR code, you know, with appropriate consent authority. Oh yeah, we know we need to improve that. You know, so you can have a great outcome at the end of the day, but if the journey along the way is, is suboptimal, then it's questionable. I give the analogy, it's like going on a train station. The train may run on time in Japanese style, but if the station is full of litter and there's no shelter when it's raining, you might catch the train on time. You might get to point A or B, but you'll be thinking, she's right. Yeah, not a good journey. So the customer experience is about the journey. Mm, absolutely. That's great. Now, beyond the audience that we have working within, say, a setting that might be challenging, then we've got a broad audience of clinicians and vendors and startups and hospitals, et cetera, that, that listen. What advice can you give to others that really want to make a meaningful impact when it comes to healthcare and technology? Oh, well, focus, always focus on the individual. Like, again, in, in government, I imagine in a lot of you know, big sectors, we focus on the company or the organization. And the big shift in this decade has to be back to the individual. That's where you're going to drive optimal care. And I see that increasingly as I move around the health sector, how we are transitioning. But it is a difficult transition because so much of the back end is geared towards the big organizations, the big government structures. But I think when we do land, and we'll definitely land it by the end of the decade, we have to, we're going to see a phenomenal uptake in terms of user, in terms of customer experience, and in terms of outcomes as well. Mm. I've got a selfish question as well, because I've seen you suggest it or hint to it on LinkedIn a couple of times before. When can I ditch those blue books that I've got for my three kids? Because I keep losing them and I always seem to forget to bring them with me. So there's got to be some hope on the horizon. 
theory. So today we're making an announcement in relation to more money going into digital health, essentially, that will help us build out the blue book. So hopefully by the end of the year, we'll have something that we can show the public. Having said that, it is going to be iterative. So we'll continue to build on it because let me ask you this question. Who does the blue book belong to? Well, I guess it's about the child. Correct. But we, we hold on to it, I suppose, to make sure it's filled out um, because that's Correct. what we're told to do. But for the benefit of the child. Yes. So that, in many ways, that blue book in a digital form it should follow that child throughout that child's life. There may be mm. things that in 30 or 40 or 50 years even, that somebody has entered into the blue book from a genetic point of view, who knows, environmental point of view, Mm. uh, people say, you know what, that was interesting, that causes that. So that's why we have to digitize that blue book because God knows where my blue book is, probably doesn't even exist. And it's no complaint to my parents, but it is going to be more and more critical as we move forward that this information is there because... The way I see you know, machine learning, particularly in the next 10 years, 15 years, it's just all about more and more correlations. Yeah, we, AI isn't smart enough and it won't be smart enough for a long, 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 long time to actually do the causation bit. All AI can do is say, and that match. These two houses, yeah, and then and we get smart people in the, you know, in the health space to say, right, let's, under, let's work out why they match. This is the causation. But we can get a whole lot of correlations but to get the correlations, we need the data. And that's where we can move really fast into research, whether it's Alzheimer's or the like. You know, hypothetically, who knew that a 54-year-old that eats Vegemite every morning consistently and every 54-year-old with an Italian heritage that eats Vegemite every morning might be more susceptible to a heart attack. Two correlations, therefore reduce your Vegemite every morning. You know, that's, that's where I think we will move more and more into Yeah, I love the concept of taking really complex data and from different perspectives, but then importantly, to be able to bring it back to the patient, to be able to give actionable insights that that make a meaningful impact. I think that's, that's the crux of it. Yeah. And like in the, and then got to make sure that the patient is that center of the universe and they have custodianship of their data. So for example, you know, I gave blood the other day. So when I give blood, I get, I sure I give blood, but what do I get in return? I get a milkshake. Happy days. But in the future, like, why wouldn't I or why shouldn't I be able to donate my data, again, anonymize with security, everything around it? And what I don't get a milkshake back, I get insights back. And this is, you know, i.e., oh, geez, that's interesting data. You know, let me give you some insights in relation to people with, you know, your health profile. And that's where I see the future moving. And it's already there. Like, you know, look at Ancestry.com. You give them, yeah, the DNA type people. You give them your data. They give you insights about where you we come from. And that data continues to get refined. Like when I did it three years ago, I was only about you know sixty percent Italian, and that they keep increasing it based on more and more data. They're getting more sophistication around it. So I'm now ninety eight percent Italian. There you go. But uh, there you go. But yeah, with a deviation of two percent, I'm calling it a thoroughbred. So, but, <laughs> but the point is. I'm getting something back for what I'm giving, provided this in a private setting that I can control. Yeah, really exciting. Look, we've touched on a lot of exciting potential when it comes to healthcare and different technologies. 
you've mentioned all the terms like the the web threes and the machine learnings and all those cool things for the future. But just to close at our final things about what we can look forward to when it comes to what we should be striving for when it comes to digitization and healthcare, I think you've you know touched it a few times throughout the conversation. But to summarize, what excites you about the future of of healthcare and digital over the coming years? Well, we're just going to have profound improvements to the quality of life. At the end of the day, yeah, I, I love tech, not because I love gadgets. I love tech because of its ability to improve quality of life and reduce suffering. And there is so much suffering out there that we can solve through tech and through the smart use and secure use of data. So if we can do that, then we'll unlock some of the really wicked challenges we have, whether it's around Alzheimer's, you know, whether it's cancer, diabetes, you name it. You know, we got CRISPR that has just really started in a real sense. Yeah. And we need ethicists around this left, right, and center. But the point is, as long as we've got our, our, again, our principles right, our ethicists with us, and our eyes wide open, and we have an informed discussion as a society, then we can have profound impact on quality of life. Super inspiring, I think, for people within New South Wales, across Australia and in decision-making roles as well. So playing a really important role, Victor, and it's exciting to watch. I'll put the show notes and an article following this episode for people to check out on our website to learn more and connect as well. Victor, I appreciate you making the time in your super busy schedule and look forward to continuing to follow you. Thanks so much. Good night, Pete. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. Make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast player and for more information, visit talkinghealthtech.com.